I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about whatever interests me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a brilliant and highly readable work on the book of Revelation, and I talk about the progression of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2. So I'm standing here in my office overlooking the lake on campus on an absolutely spectacularly beautiful summer day. And uh, I'm recording in my office today because I don't want to record at home, which would be my preference. I'd rather be recording from my kitchen, having easy access to snacks. Uh, But there are two small kittens in our house right now, and they are incredibly playful and a ton of fun. And I'd be just way too distracted. And um, they're still in this cute sort of kitten phase where uh, whenever I'm around, they just want to climb all over my feet and uh, attempt to, I'm wearing shorts, they attempt to climb my bare legs by digging their claws into my legs. I've got scratches all over me. So uh, I'm not in the kitchen today. I'm in the office. Uh, It's been a week, a little over a week that we've had these two little creatures running around our house bringing us a lot of joy and delight. And uh, we've not settled on names. I had proposed uh, obscure and incompetent presidential names, U.S. presidents, like Chester A. Arthur and Rutherford B. Hayes. But those uh, suggestions were not met with a lot of enthusiasm on the part of the person to whom I'm related by marriage. Uh, She has in mind something like Squeaker or Pipsqueak or pepper or something like that, which is completely fine. To this point, however, the two boys, the two brothers are unnamed and uh, which is which is fine. It's it's sort of like this one and that one, the one over there. And where's the other one? That's that's what we're going by so far. Uh, having these little kittens around has reminded me of a great documentary film. If you like animals, If you enjoy documentaries and if you just love humanity, uh, check out the documentary called Kedi, K-E-D-I. It is a brilliant, brilliant, beautiful, heart-achingly gorgeous film. And it's about uh, the cats of Istanbul that just kind of roam wild through the city. And it is just one of the most beautiful films. Great music. Uh, it's just shot beautifully and uh, sort of shows off the city and um, it sort of displays the beautiful relationship between the inhabitants of Istanbul and the cats, uh, the relationship between people and felines. It's really, really lovely and follows the stories of a number of those cats. Just really cool. Um, we're going to have to hunker down in the basement one of these days and watch that again because we've just really loved having some some new inhabitants of our home. Uh, in two weeks, uh, school starts for us. Those of you who are teachers, school is getting started up for many of you, depend, you know, at some time, if it's not begun already. And here at the seminary, we start classes in two weeks. And the first meeting of our biblical hermeneutics class is two weeks from this Friday, September 3rd. 
And I've gotten a bunch of questions from various folks um, asking about, you know, how to interpret the Bible or to do some stuff on how to interpret various passages. Uh, that's, and to my mind, there's a lot of complexity to that because Jonathan and I, my Old Testament colleague, we teach this class together. So I don't know that I could sort of, well, it would take some work to kind of simplify and boil stuff down. Um, but if you just wonder about, you know, how to handle scripture and want to dive into the deep end, learn about the complexities and the challenges of interpretation, but also uh, gain some skills and acquire some tools for effectively grappling with scripture over a long period of time, jump in with us. We begin, as I said, on September 3rd, I team teach a class with uh, Jonathan Greer, my Old Testament colleague. We always have an absolute blast in the class. Over the last couple semesters, since I've begun inviting people to do this, we've had a bunch of people jump in and audit the course. And uh, it seems that they've really enjoyed it. We've had a great time. And um, yeah, send me an email if you want some more information on this. I think there's just a minimal fee of $18,000. I'm just kidding. Uh, a small fee, about $100. But what you get for that, uh, I think is a pretty great deal. Access to a lot of material online readings, etc. And uh, of course, if you um, gain any sort of satisfaction listening to this podcast, you'll really enjoy uh, Jonathan. Uh, I think he's 18.6 times smarter than I am and about 23.5 times more interesting than I am. We have a great time. Join us. Email me for information. I have also uh, come into possession of a number of copies of my book, Power and Weakness. And uh, I'm not, they're just going to sit on my shelf. Uh, so if you want a copy of that book, send me an email. I'll be happy to mail it to you. Um, Power and Weakness is my book on Paul's pastoral ministry. It's, I mean, I'm very happy with the stuff that I, the other stuff that I've written. But in many ways, this is like, I think this will be when my career comes to an end, maybe in a year or two or in 20 years. I don't know what the future holds. Depends on how attractive an offer I get from the pizza shop down the street to deliver pizzas. I might switch careers. But I think that when I look back on what I've produced, I think that Power and Weakness is going to be my favorite book I, of, of what I've done. I, I love how it came together. I love how it turned out. And um, it's been a real delight to hear from pastors and people who are involved in the church in, um, in a variety of ways. It's been really gratifying to hear that it's been helpful and really enlightening and hopeful, which is what I had, <clears throat> excuse me, what I had intended uh, for it to uh, produce, uh, if that would be at all possible. So I love this book and I'm very happy with it. It's, it's not long. It's not huge. It's not big. And it's not intimidating. Um, I would love it if I could produce a massive work of New Testament scholarship that would make me look super smart. But I just don't have it in me. And um, I, I really I enjoy hearing from people that my work is readable and accessible. Um, but there's part of me that wishes I could just do something that would look really intimidating. I, I just, I don't have it. I've, I've seen in a couple different places people comment on, this is just, so, this is such a short book. It's a helpful book, but it's really short. And uh, I feel like uh, Eli Cash in the Royal Tenenbaums, when he complains to Margot 
that in her review of his work, she mentioned that this is not a work of genius. Eli Cash is not a genius. And he complains, why did you have to say I'm not a genius? She goes, well, I just don't use that word lightly. So I'm like Eli Cash. This is a work akin to the novels of Eli Cash and the Royal Tenenbaums. Think of it that way. Whatever the case, if you want a copy, uh, I've got a handful. I don't have limitless numbers, but send me an email and I'll be very, very happy to send those on to you for your own use and hopeful enjoyment. Uh, if I don't, if I run out, check out the book anyway. Uh, oh, yeah, Sarah told me to say this. On the Baker Bookhouse website, uh, which is an independent bookstore, uh, they have it for sale, listed right now for cheaper than you can get it on Amazon. And so I think the shipping is comparable. So uh, if you want a good deal on power and weakness and you want to support the work of a local business uh, populated by wonderful folks, check out, uh, get on bakerbookhouse.com and get power and weakness uh, for cheap at a, at a discount and for cheaper than you can get it on uh, the rapacious behemoth website. So there's a certain thought that I've had for, uh, for a couple months now, and I've been trying to sort of flesh this out and work it out uh, here and there, you know, on a morning walk, uh, because it, it seems that there's something there. And so I'm just going to try to see if it all comes together. And if it doesn't in this segment, I'll just not include it. Um, but it has to do with the whole notion of belonging, belonging. Um, Willie Jennings, in his masterful, mind-blowing book, uh, The Christian Imagination, uh, has, has quite a bit to say about belonging as one of the fundamental ways of being Christian, which is really, really interesting. And he sort of takes up this notion and plays with it and draws it out. And um, with regard to uh, um, racial healing and uh, you know, embodying God's racial justice and moving beyond whiteness, in uh, carrying out Christian discipleship, he, he talks about belonging as like this sort of this key to how that uh, can all unlock loads of promise, the fact that the reality that we all belong to one another. And uh, that gets past the logics of capitalism and liberal democracy. I mean, capitalism, one of its dynamics is that it sets us all against each other. We're all in competition uh, in liberal democracy envisions us all as individuals on our own and um, sort of uh, individuals with rights and of course kind of set loose on the playing field of reality. Our rights are sort of in conflict and so we're in constant negotiation. Uh, to see ourselves as belonging to one another is, is a very different conception of things. It's profoundly Christian. And um, anyway, I didn't mean to start with all of that, um, but my thinking about this began um, when I read Ann Applebaum's book, uh, De um, Decline of Democracy, and then she, which came out a number of months ago, and she also had an article in The Atlantic, which I thought was really fascinating. But she talked about uh, people that are caught in this kind of, um, uh, people who are caught in the big lie uh, and who are on their way towards ushering in uh, authoritarianism, that that's really the necessary starting point. And she has seen this in a variety of uh, countries in Central Europe and in Eastern Europe. The, the starting point is people who believe the big lie. 
And she goes through a number of examples. It's really fascinating and depressing. And she applies that to the current state of things in the United States. Uh, people who have bought the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen and that the former president is actually the rightful winner, etc. That, which she sees as so threatening to democracy, is that the big, li- the big lie is so widely believed. And she also talks about a number of other conspiracy theories or people who are caught up in conspiracy theories um, are sort of a uh, part of the foment or part of the growing dynamic which ushers in an authoritarian regime. And uh, she, she meditated for a while on like what, what to do with these people. I mean, how to regard people who have bought the big lie or how to regard people who are caught in the web of a conspiracy, um, a conspiracy theory, uh, who see all these kind of dark machinations at work behind the, uh, the scenes of reality, but, but which, you know, hold no water, really. And uh, what I thought was so fascinating about what she had to say was that people cannot be argued out of a conspiracy theory, or people cannot be sort of convinced uh, to reject the big lie because it has nothing to do with ideas. It has nothing to do with, uh, it, it's, it's not an intellectual sort of a thing. It's not cognitive. Nobody sat down uh, as an objective uh, observer of things and looked at the evidence and came to that conclusion. Rather, it's an emotional reality and it has everything to do with belonging. Belonging to a tribe that has it right. Belonging to the group of people who see it clearly. And, not, and we're not those people who are being duped. You know, we're not the ones um, over whose eyes the wool has been pulled. We're the ones with genuine insight. And um, I've, so I've been thinking about that. I mean, and I totally agree with Anne Applebaum's um, assessment of things that these realities are, are um, they're more fundamental than simple sort of mental processes. And uh, anybody that tries to get into arguments over the ideas or the merits of the case is just, you know, tangling with a tar baby. It's just going to be a mess and nobody's going to come away satisfied because, you know, the big lie was not believed or the conspiracy theory was not believed based on intellectual activity. It has everything to do with something far more profound. It's, It's emotional. It has to do with belonging. And um, I was thinking about this because that notion, belonging, is a reality that uh, Christians possess by virtue of being Christian. We Christians belong to God. Christians are claimed by God. Christians are people who are redeemed out of the present evil age, out of the domain uh, of darkness, out of enslavement to sin and death and are liberated into this reality, which is a new cosmic location called in Christ. And in that place, we are, we are, we, we belong to God. And it's really beautiful. Paul captures this in a couple of different places in Galatians and in first Corinthians, where he sort of stops himself because he refers to people who know God, or I should say known by God, which I think is so beautiful um, Christian people are people who are known by God, who belong to God. And it's interesting. It just was an interesting mental exercise to think through 
how it is that this is something that Christians already possess. They already possess this thing that apparently a lot of humans long for and quest for, belonging. And then I was thinking about um, there's a distinction between the kind of belonging that is Christian belonging and the kind of belonging that is on offer anywhere else. Like what's unique about Christian belonging? And it seems to me that the reality of belonging to God is a reality that is embodied in certain ways. It's, it's a reality that looks like something. It has practices, it has postures, it has a way of regarding the other. And it has, um, you know, uh, its imagination has a certain structure. And so what is it? And it seems to me that belonging to God looks like embrace of the other. Um, belonging to God looks like reckoning with our belonging to others. When the one who belongs to God encounters the other, whoever the other is, the one who is unlike us, the one who's unlike me, the one who um, our inherited culture says they're on the other side of the issue from us. The ones who belong to God reckon with their belonging to all of those others. Because the, uh, I mean, this is just what God does. God regards the other, that is, all of humanity has become the other, and God becomes the other. God has solidarity with the other. Uh, God gives his life. God dies for the other, and God longs for the redemption of the other. And uh, God regards the other in a position of weakness, in a position of invitation, um, with a regard that uh, with a posture and set of practices and behaviors that's non-coercive, that's non-violent, that doesn't force himself on others or anything like that. So to belong to that God would be to take up and uh, mimic the way that he behaves and the way that he regards and the way that he imagines the other. So it seems to me that Christian belonging involves giving ourselves to others, uh, embracing others, um, refuses the practices of shutting out others, is not exclusive, doesn't exclude others. Um, Christian belonging does not identify any other as an enemy. I mean, this is the beauty and the brilliance um, and the threat of enemy love. Love your enemies. To belong to God is to love your enemies as yourself to love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, pray for those that mistreat you, love your enemies. And if Christian belonging entails embracing the other, there is a threat to that. I mean, there, there's a danger to that. Uh, you might sustain damage and harm. Um, I mean, my goodness, if God uh, takes this risk in in regarding the other in this way, and ends up dying, that that just might happen. Um, now, I'm, I'm speaking broadly here. I know that there are a lot of contingencies to all of that, but it just seems like Christian belonging um, involves a whole range of postures and practices and attitudes and behaviors, speech patterns, et cetera, communal dynamics that, that look like that. Um, and 
because other kinds of belonging, like I'm just thinking about the kinds of belonging that are on offer in our world um, and the kinds of belonging that Paul confronts, actually, now that I think of it. I mean, this is what Romans is about and what Galatians is about, um, along with some other texts. And this pops up in Colossians and in Philippians and uh, other New Testament writers talk about it as well. There is, there, it seems like there's always this kind of notion of belonging that in order to have it, it necessitates the exclusion of others. I mean, that's what's going on in the Roman house churches. There's a group that imagines that they, they have it right. They are the ones that truly belong to God because they, they have taken on a Jewish identity or are considering it or pursuing it. And they're not like that group, you know, the ungodly group, the group that they get to exclude by virtue of being on the inside. Like that is an inadequate belonging. That's an ungodly belonging because that kind of belonging, uh, like I said, necessitates excluding others. So it's not a faithful embodiment and performance of what belonging to God looks like. Belonging to God looks like regarding the other and embracing the other, welcoming the other, celebrating with the other, celebrating the other, and receiving the other's celebration of us. This is what... It, and. and and not even really tolerating any kind of us and them language, but moving toward um, an ever-increasing size of the group, us. That's kind of what this is all about. But inadequate or um, non-Christian modes of belonging are, are, are um, types of belonging that require an enemy. And certainly... This is, you know, the big lie that the election was stolen and, and all other big lies that lead to the rise of authoritarianism. Um, those are all sort of anti-Christian ways of belonging because they are, they necessitate the identification of a, a variety of enemies. In fact, um, it's a way of being in the world that reckons with a complex reality a complex national scene um, where there is increasing, increasing complexity. There are more ethnicities in America than ever before. Um, there are, there's greater variety in, in so many ways than ever before. And that is felt and seen to be threatening. So we need some strong man to come in and just deal with them, bring clarity and exclude with force those people. The other is a threat. The other is an enemy. And inevitably, that inadequate kind of belonging generates anger. It generates especially resentment. In fact, um, resentment, that's a profounder kind of resentment than just the English term. Uh, in French philosophers uh, talked about this, ressentiment, where they it sort of captured a whole range of emotions with regard to the other, like just a, kind of a growing rage at the very existence, at the thought that the other even exists. And we've seen this, really, we've seen this over the course of American history and going back before the founding of the nation with regard to black people on this land and with regard to indigenous people on this land and varieties of waves of immigrants, I mean, Chinese immigrants, Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants, have all faced this. Catholics um, have all faced the resentment and the anger and the exclusion of people that want to claim um, 
a, a kind of an American identity that excludes other people, whoever they may be. Um, so anyway, it was just interesting to me to kind of take take up that lens of belonging and to try to distinguish um, different kinds of belonging. There's there's a kind of a group identity that um, I mean this, this this happens all the time. I mean I was raised with and trained in this kind of way of thinking. You know we are you know evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, and we're the ones that got it right. We're not like them. You know they out there are the threat. Liberals, Democrats, um, progressive, whoever. There's a there are groups out there that are a threat, and we're the ones who have it right. I remember when I was in seminary. Good Lord, just, um, I think I said this out loud at one point, you know, praise God that I'm at the place that has the truth, which is uh, such a dangerous deception. It's a complete self-delusion um, to look out on the world and see nothing but threat is a really bad place to be and is a real is a really um, corrupt form of belonging. But it it, it pops up everywhere. I think it's natural. Um, it's not natural. That's not the natural way of, of being. Uh, it, it's it's sort of natural to our broken and perverted and corrupted human imaginations. It happens all the time. I think you could look at biblical Israel through this lens that they wanted to sort of circumscribe the boundaries of who belonged, and they never carried out uh, the mission to which they were called. Uh, to be a light to the nations and to sit down with the nations as good neighbors and help them and work together to creatively embody being Israel and the nations among or within creation for God's glory. They just never did it because the other was a threat. They can't, can't do that. Got to draw tight lines, strong boundaries. And so it seems to me that corrupt forms of belonging will always generate animosity, resentment, anger, bitterness, malicious speech, denunciation of others, judgmentalism, condescension, um, and there will be no shortage of enemies. But Christian belonging um, entails the elimination of that category, enemies. Humans, whoever they are, Humans are those to whom we belong. All other humans, all, all other humans belong to us. We share in belonging and um, we celebrate that. And so that, that requires that we do, to my mind, we do the good work of kind of rummaging through our imaginations to discern how our inherited imaginations intuitively construct how the other is dangerous, how the other is a threat, um, so that we we can counteract that and sort of renovate our imaginations so that we can begin to see encountering whoever the threatening other is so that we can see those encounters as opportunities that are hopeful and promising and good for us and uh, potential outbreaks of Christian activity by just meeting and listening and learning and sharing ourselves with and inviting others to share themselves with us. Uh, the challenge in saying all this is what to do as a Christian person seeking to embody genuine Christian belonging uh, with others who belong 
to an exclusive group? How do you embody Christian belonging with others um, who say, for example, buy the big lie or who are captive to a conspiracy theory, um, who have kind of bought into a, a sub-Christian belonging that offers them some kind of promise? Like they're, it, everybody buys these kinds of things only because they think that's the right thing to do and that it's, it's a promising and a hopeful prospect. So what do you do in relating um, to those kinds of people? And it seems to me that in relating to them, you stay Christian. Like you, you reckon with the reality that they are also people to whom we belong. I think the temptation is to imagine that it's our task to set them right uh, or to convert them or to um, convince them otherwise or something like that. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that that's a promising way forward. I think it, I think it's it's a it's the right thing to do to maintain that posture of Christian belonging with all other people, with all other humans. Um, I found it a joyful way to be. I think it's a hopeful and promising way to be. Um, but just to say, I think it's, I think it's an interesting lens to look through to sort of um, creatively imagine what it is to be Christian in God's good world and what it means to be Christian in relation to God, that we belong to God. We are God's. We're his creatures. And this is how we embody that reality with all other people. All other people are people to whom we belong. And that's, that's gift. That is a great gift. I mean, what a, what a, a generous mode of life to inhabit. Um, that other people are a gift to me and I'm a gift to other people and we can celebrate our common humanity. Anyway, I just wanted to bring all that together. If it if it connects, great. If it opens up some vistas into uh, creatively being Christian, fantastic. If it's a complete confused mess, um, that's okay too. <laughs> I want to tell you about a book. It's by Michael Gorman, and it's called Reading Revelation Responsibly, Uncivil Worship and Witness, Following the Lamb into the New Creation, and it's published by Cascade. Yes, you heard me rightly. This book has two subtitles. I don't know how that happened, but you could just think of it as Reading Revelation Responsibly. And I'm not going to bang on Michael Gorman. He's one of my favorite New Testament scholars. And amazingly, he agreed to write the foreword for my book, Power and Weakness, for which I am immensely grateful. The book of Revelation is definitely the most mystifying and difficult text in the New Testament, although Hebrews runs a close second, very honestly. And in the history of the church, there's been an unending stream of less than responsible ways of engaging Revelation. I was raised and trained in a dispensational tradition, which read Revelation as a sort of blueprint for understanding the fearful times in which we lived, and also, and especially, a timeline for the future. We had charts and graphs that seemed like they were produced by John Nash in A Beautiful Mind. They somehow made some kind of sense, but I have to admit, they never helped me make heads or tails of Revelation, nor of present existence, nor of the future. I wish I had a book like this one years ago because it is so incredibly useful for making Revelation make sense as a work of Jewish apocalyptic. And it also helps readers discern how it makes sense of current Christian discipleship. According to Gorman, 
Revelation is not a timeline for figuring out future events, but rather is designed to appeal to our imaginations, shaping and reshaping how we see the world and all of reality. It's meant to purge and refurbish the Christian imagination. Gorman states that Revelation invites us to imagine and then practice what we will call uncivil worship and witness, which means following the Lamb, Christ, into the new creation. By uncivil worship and witness, Gorman means a rejection of civil religion, whether in the first century or the 21st century. Revelation is meant to be a critique of empire and civil religion in the first century, and Gorman describes how this was supposed to work. The civil religion in the first century was designed to shape imaginations to see that the gods of Rome had chosen Rome, and that Rome and its emperor are agents of the gods' rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings. Blessings among humanity would have come through Rome, bringing security, peace, justice, and fertility to all who would submit to its rule. All of the public ceremonies and the rituals that constituted daily life were designed to cement this reality in everyone's imagination. And Revelation is designed to purge that false reality from the imagination and to refurbish it with a radically alternative reality. In that sense, Revelation is a theopolitical text. It portrays the one true God as creation's rightful ruler and challenges the political theology of empire and the religious ideology that underwrites it. Revelation tells us not only who is really sovereign, but also what kind of sovereignty the true God exercises, a nonviolent and non-coercive lamb power. Gorman has a chapter that brilliantly describes how the United States has had, and continues to have, an imperial character. And there's a set of interconnected myths or theological themes that have created and currently sustained an American civil religion. These include the idea that America is exceptional, chosen by God, a city on a hill, the light of the world. These notions foster in us extreme patriotism, extreme love of country, and they underwrite the pervasive notion of Christian nationalism, the idea that our country is the greatest nation on earth and therefore worthy of unqualified allegiance. Gorman lists the symbols, rituals, and practices that make up an American civil religion, including the flag as a sacred object, the blending of Christian and national images on national holy days, such as July 4th and Veterans Day, along with the Pledge of Allegiance. Revelation exposes this idolatrous reality and challenges the church to follow the Lamb in a community of faithful resistance, liturgical living, and missional hope. Gorman provides an interesting and helpful critique of the Left Behind reading of Revelation, and he goes on to lay out a way of interpreting the text that takes seriously its character as a circular letter, a work of prophecy, and also of apocalyptic. This book is simply the most helpful work on Revelation that I've come across. It's easily accessible and highly readable. It just makes Revelation make good sense. And it's so filled with hope. If you're interested in studying the mystifying and intriguing book of Revelation, Gorman's book is the place to start. Again, it's called Reading Revelation Responsibly, Uncivil Worship and Witness, Following the Lamb into the New Creation. Its author is Michael Gorman, and it's published by Cascade. Get it, as ever, from an independent bookstore.
So, Romans 2. As I've been saying over the last uh, couple of weeks and talking about Romans chapter 1, or especially 118 to 32, Paul is setting up his audience. He's setting up especially, it seems to me, the weak. Um, that is, Romans 118 to 32 is sort of rhetorically supercharged and even perhaps overstated in as dark a tone as possible. Paul sort of tells the story of the descent of the Gentiles, uh, that is the non-Jewish nations of the world, into idolatry and, and degradation of their humanity. Um, he tells that in as dark um, dark as tone, as, as in dark a way as possible, in order uh, to arouse the judgmental passion of the weak as they look in judgment on the strong. And he's doing that to then arrive at 2-1, to turn on them and confront them for their judgmental uh, attitudes and postures toward the strong. Keeping in mind uh, that the um, verse numbers and the chapter divisions are, um, you know, a far later addition to our texts. Paul's not thinking of turning the page into chapter two. He is, uh, you know, weaving one continuous argument. But anyway, um, so I think that Paul's turning the tables on the weak. At the same time, uh, I don't want to completely marginalize the strong from this confrontation. That is the, the group of Gentiles who are just remaining Gentiles. The weak are a group of Gentiles, in my view, who uh, believe that they that faithfulness to the one true God in Christ looks like becoming Jewish and taking on a kind of a Jewish identity and a Jewish mode of life. Those are the two groups. Um, at the same time, in chapters 14 and 15, when Paul uh, makes some exhortations and gets very specific uh, to these communities, he he exhorts them both to, to not judge, to, to not pass judgment or to condemn uh, the other group. So, and not only that, uh, but Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2, every one of you that passes judgment. So, anybody in the Roman house churches that is judging another group that thinks that it is on the, that is, it is part of the, sorry, any group, any, anybody in the Roman churches that thinks that they are part of the inside group, the one who, the one that gets it over against the group that doesn't get it and is kind of on the outs with God, they are uh, condemned. Paul is coming after them. That is Paul's target. So, um, and I think that this is, I mentioned this before, this is this is the first bomb that is dropped uh, in Paul's argument. And um, Romans has been read as sort of a generalized theological treatise where Paul in 2.1 is kind of addressing anybody at random who is uh, sort of a judgmental or self-righteous person. And that uh, Romans has typically been read as very generalized. That is, it's not directed to the churches in Rome. Yes, it's sent there, but it's this kind of work of general theology referring to any kind of self-righteous person in the world out there. Uh, so that chapter two is not read as the sort of highly charged confrontation that it actually is. In my view, Paul is going after uh, the situation and he's, he's directly confronting the weak. So this is the first bomb that is dropped. Um, that's definitely a minority reading, 
Many commentators will talk about how uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is a pastoral letter written to the churches of Rome, but it's a gift to them of sort of his theology. So it's it it's another way of just reading this as a generalized treatise, which I don't think is a good way of reading it. Paul is being very confrontational. Uh, he says as much, oh goodness, I think this is in Romans 15. Yeah, in the second half of Romans 15, he says, I realize I've written to you very boldly on a number of matters. Well, in the Christian tradition, in the Western tradition, Romans has not been read and interpreted as a very bold text, but it is. At least he thought it was. So why not read it as such? So anyway, just to say, we get this confrontation at the very beginning where Paul is confronting the weak. Uh, and it's interesting, the basis that he con- that he confronts them on is because they practice the very same thing. Now, I don't think that what um, what Paul is doing here is saying that uh, the weak are part of a group of people that commit and do all of the things that are found in 118 to 32. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I don't think that Paul even imagines that sort of all humanity commits all of those things. It's just that I think that the character of the accusation made on the part of the weak against the strong is that the strong are sort of tainted by connection with that uh, with, with that long history of the Gentile descent into idolatry and human degradation. Like that's their history. Uh, they're sort of attached to that and there's nothing that they can do to escape it. And there's nothing that they could do to sort of get um, get in a right relationship with God, whereas they, adopting a Jewish identity, that is the weak, they can. That If they repent, they'll be restored. But uh, there's nothing that the pure Gentiles can do. They're just completely lost because they are inevitably tainted um, and corrupted and stained with that history. The Gentiles who are the weak, who have, who have um, made a sort of a conversion to, to a Jewish way of life, they imagine that they've escaped that. And so they are righteous, they are godly, they are holy, whereas the strong are the ungodly and um, are in a hopeless situation. So I think what Paul's getting at here by saying, you know, you who judge, you are condemning yourself because you practice the same things. I think what Paul is saying is that you also share that history. Like you, you know, you're part of a people that these practices are characteristic of your heritage. Um, so if you think that to be part, to be connected with that history inevitably is judgment worthy, then you are condemning yourself because that is true of you as well. And I think that this is one of the, this is one of the reasons why I believe that the entire audience that Paul addresses are Gentiles it's just that they're split into two groups based on uh, one group thinking that they can take on Jewish identity. Um, I think Paul is saying, you know that you're Gentiles. You're part of that history as well. You who are passing judgment, you practice the same things. Again, I don't think he's saying that you do all those things, but you're connected to that history. And you're if you think that that um, stains a person morally, it makes them unclean, unfit for sort of uh, unfit for temple worship, of the one true God, then that is true of you as well. So you're condemning yourself 
because you judge the one that practices those things and you are basically practicing the very same things. In verses 2 to 16, uh, Paul then is going gonna, is gonna to talk about how it is that God passes judgment. And the basis for that judgment is conformity to genuine humanity. So uh, I think that this is what Paul means by saying in verse 2 that, you know, and we know that the judgment of God is according to truth um, upon the ones who practice such things. I think what Paul's getting at is sort of hearkening back to what he said in chapter 1 when, uh, you know, they, the Gentiles, they have exchanged the truth of God by a lie. They changed or perverted or corrupted or altered the truth of God by a lie. And um, that is to say that humanity was originally designed to be the reflection of God's uh, truth and his fidelity, his commitment to creation, his character, and uh, his love for creation. Humanity was created to be that within creation, and humanity has perverted that. And in the end, God is going to judge at the day of Christ um, all humanity according to true humanity. That's the standard, what, what God wants humans to be like, um, to reflect his character in the world. And so um, this message is given directly to the Roman Christians. That's going to be the basis of God's judgment. And since you are saying that anybody connected to that history of the perversion of true humanity is worthy of judgment, and since you share that history, you're going to be judged because that's the basis of God's judgment. So you're part of that same reality and also, I think Paul is hinting here that just passing judgment, period, involves the breaking up of Christian community and it involves uh, becoming an agent of sin, the cosmic power of sin in community and sin and death, which involves just, you know, corroding community dynamics, which also makes a person worthy of judgment. So to be a true human is to foster the flourishing of creation. To be a true human is to foster the flourishing of others, uh, to celebrate and delight in genuine connection with other people. And insofar as the people in the Roman churches have done that, they will uh, be received well on the day of Christ. And insofar as they're passing judgment and saying that anybody that um, participates in corrupted humanity or idolatry is worthy of judgment, they're passing judgment on themselves. Uh, interestingly, there's, there's a number of, well, there's loads of interesting things that Paul has to say here. I can't say, um, too many things about all of them, but Paul says that such people are actually storing up wrath for the day of wrath and for the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Uh, what I find really interesting here is in chapter one, Paul talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed. And like I said, in 118 to 32, Paul is painting in very dark rhetorical tones. But after that, I believe for the rest of Romans, anytime wrath is mentioned, it is not, Paul does not mention the wrath of God. It's just wrath. And it seems to me that this is a little bit of a window into how Paul envisions God's judgment in the end that it's not necessarily the case. Um, actually, see this down. Uh, 
um, it's not necessarily the case that wrath is sort of connected too closely with God in Paul's thoughts. Um, and that this is sort of how Paul conceives of judgment. Cosmically speaking, when humanity rebelled against the one true God, uh, way back in Genesis 3, there's a sense in which humanity somehow mysteriously opened some kind of a door to the, the cosmic powers of sin and death, and so that they are now players on the stage. They're part of human experience in this world, and that's an unnatural state of affairs. And because of a variety of other cosmic actors and the inclusion of Torah in all of this, Paul gets at this later in Romans 5 and 7 and 8, because of the inclusion of Torah in all this, there is somehow a condition of wrath that is there's this cosmic entity called wrath that is also um, consuming creation. It's doing a lot of destructive damage. And I think that that's another way for Paul to just imagine the chaos of this world. Because humanity cast its lot with chaos uh, in Genesis 3. Chaos has indeed been unleashed on creation. And I think Paul's way of talking about that is wrath. Wrath has been unleashed. And there's a day coming in the future for Paul when it's not that God has this wrath and he's going to pour it out on sinners. Um, it's that God is going to see to it that wrath is fully self-consumptive. That is, as wrath and chaos kind of make their way around creation, which is a tragic state of affairs, I mean, it's just an awful and lamentable and grievous state of affairs, causing even the spirit to grieve in Romans 8, um, God is sort of, in some mysterious way, seeing to it that that wrath consumes itself. And um, the only sort of cosmically safe place in Paul's theology is to be in Christ, because it may be the case that wrath and chaos somehow... Uh, you know, take down a bunch of uh, casualties of people who are in Christ. The thing is, uh, what will be ultimately protective at the day of Christ is to be in Christ. That is to say, anybody that dies in this age will be raised from the dead. Um, and on the, on the great day of judgment and resurrection, all those in Christ will be given life. But wrath, God will sort of see to it that wrath consumes all of the present evil age. So in Paul's theology, in his theological outlook, you don't want to be, you don't want to sort of have wedded yourself to this present evil age um, because you run the risk of being consumed along with all that wrath or by all that wrath. So Part of a great way to do that, part of a great way to make sure that you're going to be consumed by wrath for Paul, is to be part of passing, just to participate in the practices of passing judgment and condemning other people. You're storing up wrath for yourself. And in the end, God will judge and see to it that wrath consumes all the elements of the present evil age. You want to get the heck out of there. So passing judgment is really precarious. And on that great day in the future, oh, I was going to say, one of the interesting things about 
all of this in the end is that, um, yeah, verse seven, just skipping ahead a little bit to the ones who, uh, through the perseverance of good work, to those who seek glory and honor and immortality, uh, God will give eternal life. What's really interesting here is that eternal life, this is complicated Greek stuff in a sense, eternal life is in the Greek case that indicates that it is a direct object. That is, eternal life is the thing that God will give. What's interesting is to then turn to verse 8 and 9. Oh, sorry. Uh, Yep, verse 8 and 9. When Paul says, on the other hand, uh, also to those who disobey the truth from selfish ambition and obey unrighteousness, wrath and rage uh, or anger, tribulation and distress will come upon every human soul that works evil. What's really interesting there is that the um, the wrath and the rage, the tribulation and distress... Those are all in the nominative case, which means that they are the subject. Um, these are things that will be given, or, or I should say, these are things that will come upon every human soul that works evil. So I, I, I'm only saying that to say that the way that Paul portrays the judgment is that God is going to give uh, to those who pursue glory and honor and immortality by the way, that's that's language for being truly human. For those who pursue, for those in Rome, in the Roman house churches, for those in the Roman house churches that pursue genuine humanity um, as they participate in Christ, God is going to give them eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of God. That's something that is direct. Um, but for those in the Roman churches who are basically um, seeking to divide the church and from some kind of selfish ambition, that is to say, like uh, that, that term has to do with a party spirit, like loyalty to my party over against that other group, um, a partition spirit. For those people who um, basically unleash wrath on the community because of their selfishness, wrath will come upon them. Paul does not portray God as pouring out wrath on one hand and pouring out eternal life on the other. It's just very interesting how he sees this. Anyway, um, wrath will consume some people, and for for other people, God is going to give them the gift of eternal life because they've conformed to truly human behavior. And on that great day of judgment, the basis of judgment is going to be works. That is... um, For all the Roman Christians, God is, Paul is telling them, God is going to examine your way of life. How did you live? Did you live with a concern for the richness of of community? Did you embrace the other and give yourself to the other and offer hospitality? Or did you, were you part of uh, the destruction of the Roman house churches? So keep in mind, Paul is speaking this to these Roman Christians. Now, in the history of interpretations, certainly for Protestants, uh, this passage has been very problematic because like, whoa, wait a minute. Paul is basically saying that uh, judgment, that is that future day when God will 
um, justify his people, final justification. You're telling me that Paul's actually saying that that is going to happen by works? And so people in uh, the Reformed and Calvinistic Lutheran interpretive traditions, which has had great effects on um, yeah, the larger body of Protestant interpretation of this passage, this is regarded as something like of a hypothetical. Uh, surely Paul can't be saying this because later he says that that God is transforming humanity and that justification comes about apart from works. How is he here saying that it that the future reward, which is judgment and future justification, is actually by works? What is the deal? And so um, when we come across passages that challenge our interpretive paradigms, we uh, massage them in some kind of way. Uh, so that they're no longer embarrassing. Well, this one is a challenge to Protestant interpretation. And uh, to my mind, uh, I'm happier to make tweaks and adjustments theologically so that the um, in, in conformity with the text rather than making the text conform to how I think theologically. And Paul is simply speaking here to the Roman Christians and saying that God's judgment will be according to their way of life how they participated in community. So if in the future, all those in Christ are going to enter into life, um, the way that God determines who actually was in Christ is how they behaved. Did they cultivate um, a way of life in community that was characterized by flourishing? Or did they seek to bring about division and the ascendancy of their subgroup within the church? Um, Paul sees one one mode of life as as being the one upon uh, which God will show favor and offer eternal life. And the other mode of life is a mode of life that God finds judgment worthy. And um, my goodness, this is where, yeah, this is pretty, this is pretty harrowing actually, when you think about uh, how much we love to pass judgment and especially in the Protestant tradition um my goodness how how we have sort of gone about over the last 500 years seeking to split off from from a church i mean just constantly it's the proliferation of churches and splits in protestantism that's almost like a virtue uh so that we miss how much passing judgment and destroying the unity of the church is actually something that is fatal when you think about it. Tragic. These kind of behaviors are not uh, to be tolerated. Passing judgment and condemning other people is not is, is not a good idea. So like I said, uh, moving on verses 7 to 10, um, the language that Paul uses for the basis of God's judgment is conformity to true humanity, being genuinely human, which in Paul's view is existence in Christ. That is the cosmic realm. To be in Christ is the cosmic realm in which God is restoring humanity to the image of God. So that uh, people are being people who, through the perseverance of good work, that is cultivating long-term practices of doing good, um, who by doing that, they seek glory, honor, and immortality. And glory and honor, as I said before, those are terms that when when we hear them, we should think, oh, that's what that's what humanity is. Humanity is the glory of God. 
God crowned humanity with, with honor and glory. So this is restoration of image. If we are pursuing, Paul's telling the Roman Christians, if they are pursuing being true humans, they are going to do very well at the last judgment. Those are the people that God will give eternal life. Uh, at the same time, every human soul that effects evil, that works evil, this is not this is not merely people that practice evil. There's a Greek verb. Um, Paul's very specific with his Greek verbs. And um, there's a set of verbs um, throughout Romans, the ergodzomai uh, verb group, which, which has more of an idea of effect, like to bring about, like actions that effect a larger reality. And that's different from a set of verbs that Paul uses to talk about stuff that you do. What Paul has in mind here is behavior that effects a larger reality of evil. Um, that is to say, if the if the set of if the weak in Rome, those Christians that think that they should be embodying faithfulness to the one true God in Christ by becoming Jewish, and that decision and that way of life, uh, those community practices are effecting division in the Roman churches, that Paul sees as judgment worthy. That is something that effects evil, like. In the first instance, that seemed like a good idea, but the larger reality that it partakes of has been a divisive dynamic that is wreaking havoc in the Roman house churches. Well, my goodness, Paul says to every human soul that effects evil, all this rage and wrath and tribulation and distress is going to come upon that person, which is kind of frightening. Like I said, um, Paul's cosmic uh, theology has really transformed how I think about community dynamics because there are, we cannot think of ourselves, I mean, I should speak for myself, I cannot think of myself as in a, in a liberal democratic world. I'm not just a free agent that can do whatever I want, responsible for myself, seeing to my own rights and freedoms. And I'm not in a capitalist world. I mean, I am in a worldly sense. I mean, I live in America but I can't think of myself according to the logics of capitalism. I'm not just a competitor with everybody else seeking to accumulate stuff and, you know, ascend the ladder of prestige and social honor. Um, that is to participate in a larger reality that does immense damage and it is pure evil. And so if I'm behaving in a way that affects evil, God, I'm responsible for that. This is really frightening. So I've got to be re I've got to be thinking creatively about how I can behave in ways that effect good, that um, that bring about goodness in the communities of which I am part. I am responsible for other people. I am responsible for my community. I am responsible um, in the social circles in which I participate. I'm responsible for other people and, and for the community dynamics that work out. Um, yeah. interesting. Paul sees things. Paul's not a good liberal Democrat, not a good capitalist, would not be a Westerner and, um, would have a, a lot of things to say that would challenge us. Uh, he has said a lot of things that are quite a challenge. And, uh, verse 11, God's judgment is impartial, which is terrifying. It doesn't matter. He's telling the Roman Christians, it doesn't matter 
what to whatever extent you conform to an ethnic identity. It doesn't matter if you're part of the strong, part of the weak, whatever you're, whatever group you're a part of. If it's the case that you conform to true humanity, you will enter life on the last day. If it's the case that you are effecting evil and bringing about division, um, wrath will come upon you. And it, it does not matter to whatever extent you've met group expectations. The basis of judgment is whether you've participated in the new creation reality of God putting humanity back together into fruitful community and have cultivated the practices that look that look like that reality increasingly. That's something that we grow in the skills of. But God's judgment is impartial. Um, and he goes on to draw out what that means in verses uh, 12 to 16. Um, the people that have sinned in connection with Torah, they'll be destroyed. Oh, sorry. Uh, the, the people have, that have sinned apart from Torah, that is lawlessly or, or outside of the law, and the law is sort of seen as a like a, a circumscribing boundary, giving some people an identity and other people uh, a different identity. And if you're within the law, that is, if you have an, a Jewish identity, you'll be judged by the law. If you are apart from the law or outside the law, you'll be judged lawlessly. Um, God, God's judgment is impartial. And um, God's impartial judgment is great news for people who have... Um, who are being oppressed and mistreated because he does not favor people with social capital. And God's impartial judgment is really terrifying when it comes to um, people who actually are, who do have a lot of social capital and who have gotten in on the good parts, who, who have been privileged. Uh, God's God takes the side of the oppressed and excluded. And um, if you're someone like me who has enjoyed immense privileges in life, that's, that's kind of scary because when God looks out on the world and creation as it is, um, he sees how interconnected everything is. And so this is, uh, this is where things get really frightening for me um, because I know how connected I am with a larger reality that is dramatically unjust, not only thinking in terms of life here in the United States, but life globally. Um, anyway, God doesn't look um, on the surface. He does not see what ethnicity you're connected with. Uh, God looks at um, the full the fullness of a person, and the the basis of judgment is how much of a true human you were. Um, this this little discussion here in uh, verses, let's see, verse fourteen. This has to be understood in terms of what's going on in the Roman Christian community, and um, Paul in verse 14 is not talking about Gentiles in general. He's talking about the Gentiles in the Roman house churches. Um, because the ones who would be called Gentiles um, by the kind of the Jewish looking group, they're being condemned. And uh, Paul is basically saying in verse 13, it's not the ones who hear the law. That is, it's not people who have a Jewish identity to merely have a Jewish identity is fine. It's, but to be Jewish does not automatically get you into the group righteous ones. It's the ones who do Torah, the ones who keep Torah. They are the ones who will be 
justified or rectified in the future. At that future day of Christ, um, the ones who have kept Torah are the ones who will be fully transformed into the reality of the kingdom of God. Um, That is to say, people who are genuinely obedient. Because in Paul's view, doing Torah was more or less the same reality as being obedient to God in Christ. Uh, Paul would not have granted that those who, um, that Jewish people who are outside of Christ were obedient to Torah. He would go on, he'll go on to say later in Romans that they, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. To be genuinely obedient to Torah, Paul says in chapter 10, um, would lead a person to actually respond faithfully to Christ. Torah leads a person uh, to Christ. That is to say, um, yeah, the end of Torah is Christ. Don't I don't I don't mean that in a, a law gospel sense. Anyway, more on that down the road. Um, so, doing Torah brings about justification, not merely sort of being attached to Torah, so that it, it is merely an identity. Um, and then he's telling the weak in verse fourteen that the strong. Those, those that by nature or by birth are not Jewish, they don't have a connection to Torah by birth, whenever they actually do what the law is getting at, that is uh, pursuing genuine humanity, um, becoming people that are connected well to others and connected well to creation, these ones not having the law are a law with reference to themselves, or they are Torah with reference to themselves, because they show the work of Torah written on their hearts. They're basically living what Torah commended, and so they're going to be people who make it through the judgment, and they'll end up being people who pass judgment on you. So the impar- the impartiality of God's judgment is, um, that's going to be news to the weak, and um, they're not going to be crazy about it. So it's long been recognized that uh, verses 17 to 29 are uh, a distinct unit in chapter 2. And in the history of interpretation, um, what Paul Paul is typically seen as, uh, you know, in in 118 to 32, given the bad news of the gospel, um, of of a gospel presentation that should bring about a person's salvation, in uh, 2, 1 to 16, he's confronting a self-righteous person in, in general that you might find out there in humanity. In uh, verses 17 to 29, Paul is confronting the Jew um, and saying that he is guilty as well. <clears throat> and that is, um, I think that is a, is a, is a inappropriate tra- um, interpretation. And I think it is, it's, it's sort of a long... A hangover of Reformation rejection of Judaism. I mean, the anti-Judaism that has run, uh, well, I'll, I'll say it this way, there's been a strong current of anti-Judaism that has run through Christianity since the beginning of the second century, if not before. And that came into, um, well, it's come into full flowering in a number of ways throughout the last 2,000 years. Um, but it ha- it is strong in a Reformation context. And of course, um, that's that's borne just terrible, terrible fruit over the last 500 years. But there's a um, still a really inappropriate conception of Judaism and of Jews within a Reformation or Lutheran uh, interpretation of Romans. 
And I think that the way that verses 17 to 29 is typically interpreted is a part of that, where Paul is sort of confronting, um, I don't know, sort of a pious Jew or a Jew who thinks that, a Jew who's complacent or, um, you know, thinks that they're in with, with no problem. And I have to say that I've really benefited from uh, the work of a number of really good people. Matthew Thiessen has done some great work uh, on this whole notion. And uh, Rafael Rodriguez, um, he wrote a book and then edited a volume of essays arguing that that this is not a Jew that Paul is confronting, not a Jewish person. And Romans is not written to Jews and Gentiles uh, in his audience. Romans is written, on the contrary, uh, to an audience that is entirely uh, Gentile, but part of which imagines that it has to take on a Jewish identity or convert to Judaism, or however we say that. And I think that that is the best way to explain what Paul says here in verses 17 to 29, where he's not confronting a Jewish Christian or a Jewish person, a non-Christian Jewish person. He's confronting that group of Gentiles in Rome who imagine that their faithful discipleship to Jesus looks like taking on Jewish identity and a Jewish mode of life. He, because, excuse me, the way that he talks about this person is very, very different than how he talks about his fellow Israelites in chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, where he speaks in ways that are very honoring and um, sort of heartbroken and just so tremendously upset about the condition of his kinsmen according to the flesh. This is, this is the only place in Paul's letters where he talks like this, if you call yourself a Jew. And I think that is because um, he's sort of setting up this individual that he's talking to that is a representation of the weak there in Rome. I think that's because that's exactly what's going on. This group thinks that they are Jewish, that because they've sort of taken on perhaps some Jewish practices, some dietary uh, rituals and um, the observance of Sabbath, etc., that there's some way in which they've become Jewish and now they are in a condition of moral superiority, uh, exalted above the ones who are just merely Gentiles and who are stained with the long and ugly history of degradation into um, and the descent into idolatry. So I think that in verses 17 uh, to 24, Paul goes on this long kind of uh, rant um, confronting this person and therefore this group. But if you call yourself a Jew, then he goes on. And I think that I agree with Matthew Thiessen here. Uh, he's written two books on uh, the character of circumcision. And he has a, he has a book chapter in, in Rafael Rodriguez's book, um, the so-called Jew in Romans, uh, he argues that the assumption underlying Paul's argument in Romans 2, and I completely agree, is that Gentile conversion to Judaism isn't possible. Now, what's really interesting is that in a non-Jewish context, which um, most New Testament interpretation has been over the last 1900 years, we imagine that like conversion to Judaism is something that is possible. But Thiessen argues that um, in Torah, I don't know the details all with me, but the, the, the command in Genesis, um, the command to circumcise children 
is a command to do so on the eighth day. And he does some textual work to show that the original reading, uh, the most likely reading is with the inclusion of that detail, circumcise your son on the eighth day. And that is reflected in loads of places in the Old Testament and in Jewish texts that post-date um, Old Testament texts. And it was only in um, a period leading up to the first century that there was such a thing like Gentile, uh, the, the conversion of non-Jews to become Jewish was even something that was entertained. But even then, these were like forced conversions that were not considered genuine um, and you, I mean, just think about on the pages of the Gospels, the condition of Herod, how he was never accepted by the Jews because he was only half Jewish and was not eighth day circumcised. So it's like, I, I just think that this is a brilliant argument. The assumption on Paul's part would have been that if a person is not circumcised on the eighth day, they are not Jewish. A Jewish person, I mean, obviously this applies to men, but um, women would be tied up into the culture. A Jewish person is somebody born of Jewish parents and someone who is circumcised on the eighth day. In fact, uh, Tyson goes on to argue that, you know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Jacob is really the first uh, Israelite, um, in a sense, because uh, a person is an Israelite who's been circumcised on the eighth day, who was born. Um, who was born from a woman who was impregnated by a man who was circumcised on the eighth day. Abraham was not circumcised on the eighth day. So in a sense, Isaac is not the first Israelite. And, uh, but Isaac was circumcised on the eighth day. So Jacob is the first Israelite. Anyway, really fascinating. But I think that that informs the character of Paul's argument a person who is non-Jewish cannot convert to become Jewish. And of, of course, part of Paul's argument is that they don't need to because God is saving all humanity in Christ on the same basis, on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ. Um, that's, that's it. It doesn't matter what eth ethnicity you are. And to imagine that you have to change ethnicities is a corruption um, of the gospel. So, Paul goes on a, a series of statements here, but if you call yourself a Jew and, you know, rely on or take comfort in the law and boast in God, and he goes on and on and on. If you think that you've sort of adopted this identity as the instructor of foolish ones and all of this, uh, he, he then turns in verse 21 to ask, therefore, the one who teaches another, do you not teach yourself? And then he goes on a series of questions asking, don't you, you know, if you teach this, um, do you also do that? And I think what he is doing is uh, highlighting the reality that the Gentile, the, the weak in Rome, these Gentiles who have imagined, and he sees them as self-deceived, who have imagined that they've become Jewish and are now in on the wonderful heritage of Israel as the instructor of the nations— um, he's basically telling them, you are instructing yourself. You should be, te you, you are teaching yourself. Don't you listen to yourself? Because basically he's addressing them as simultaneously Jewish and 
Gentile. He's addressing them really as Gentile people who think that they are Jewish. They are, in a sense, the students of Israel, but they think that they're the teachers. And so he kind of, he's basically just trying to, you know, kind of tie them in knots. Um, You think that you are the teacher, but you really are the students. Are you not listening to yourselves? And uh, in verse 23, you who boast in the law through transgression of the law, you dishonor God. Now, Paul mentions transgression here. He mentions transgression in verse 25 and mentions it again in verse 27. Paul is telling this person, and therefore the group that are the weak, that that this person is a transgressor of Torah. Now, to be a transgressor of Torah, we we these distinctions are kind of lost on us. To be a transgressor of Torah is not to be somebody who like disobeyed in one instance. That's just, you know, to be a sinner. Somebody who sins can be restored and forgiven. That's it's completely fine. Um, that happened in um in the scriptures of Israel through sacrifice and atonement, all the rest, you know, forgiveness was enjoyed by the people of God when they sinned. To be a transgressor is is to be is to not be someone who like made a mistake or committed an error or hurt somebody and then sought restoration. That's just to be a normal Israelite and to be participating in the the, the whole um, structure and the dynamics of forgiveness. To be a transgressor is to violate the law, like to step outside the law, to throw off the law. And and transgressors were people. Uh, Deuteronomy, oh goodness, um, brain freeze. I think it's Deuteronomy uh, twenty-seven, the second half of the chapter, lists the kind of people that should be considered transgressors. And these people are so morally corrupt; they have defied God and just defied Torah to such an extent that they need to be put outside the people of God, because they are cursed by God. And when God sends down his curse upon this person. You want them to be outside the community of Israel so that the whole community of Israel is not cursed. So to be a transgressor is serious violation of Torah, like destruction of Torah. It's, it's, to be a transgressor is a different category than to be a sinner, someone who sins, or just a normal human that's broken. So Paul says of this person, through your transgression of Torah, you dishonor God. And I totally agree with Tyson here, where he argues that what Paul has in mind here is uh, non-Jewish people who think that they can be, become uh, Torah observant in a Jewish sense by just becoming circumcised. What they're doing is they're violating the fundamental aspect of what it is to be a Jewish person by undergoing eighth-day circumcision. And if you're older than eight days, you're it's done. You can't You can't be Jewish. So they're violating that basic commandment uh, whereby God's people were identified by eighth-day circumcision. Paul thinks that they are transgressors, and therefore you are dishonoring God. And then verse 24, which is a citation, uh, oh goodness, I didn't write down where this is from, either Isaiah or the Psalms, where Paul quotes, for the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you, just as it is written. And what is really interesting is this is sort of a double whammy here in verse 24. Um, Paul's audience that are the weak 
they they imagine that they are Jewish. They call themselves Jews. And Paul is saying this statement spoken by God to Israel is true of you. The name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. And in a sense, playfully, Paul is being really sarcastic here. Uh, they imagine that they're Israelites, like part of the historic people of God, but they're insofar as they are fostering the blasphemy of God among the nations, fostering you know, disobedience there in Rome by breaking up what God has created. Um, so they are basically disobedient Israelites, and they are also the nations. They're also the arena in which God's name is being blasphemed. So they're both the cause of the blaspheme, uh, the blasphemy, and the arena in which it takes place. So Paul has got the weak tied in logical knots. So, I mean, if they're, you know, he, he's somebody who is an expert in Torah and he's showing them your people are clueless. You have no idea. Uh, in verses 25 to 27, Paul goes on to say that, yes, circumcision that is Jewish identity has value. Like it is this, yes, of course it's this uh, wonderfully honored and dignified thing uh, to the God of Israel, the God who gave Torah, but it has value if you practice Torah. But if you're a transgressor, that is a lawbreaker, like all you people there in Rome who think that you can just become Jewish while violating the command to become circumcised on the eighth day, uh, if you are a transgressor, then your circumcision has become um, has become uncircumcision. And uh, the argument here is that Jewish identity is good, and that Jewish people who are be uh, who are obedient to Torah, which Paul sees as people who are obedient to Christ, since like I said from Romans ten, um, a faithful reading of Torah in Paul's view leads one to become a follower of Jesus. Um. But Gentiles that think that they can just convert to Judaism, they're, they are transgressors of Torah since the commandment entails eighth-day circumcision. So it's, it's an impossibility. And he goes on to say that the Gentile who keeps the righteous work of Torah, which is to be a faithful participant in the fostering of community that is flourishing, um, they'll be reckoned as circumcised. That is, I think what Paul's getting at there is Sometimes he uses circumcision in the sense of uh, belonging to the people of God, the people that are on the inside. And he uses it in that sense in uh, Philippians 3. Um, and when Paul talks about the righteous things of Torah or the righteous work of Torah, uh, he's talking about conformity to true humanity because that's what Torah was given to Israel for. Here, people, is how to be restored image bearers. Here's how to be renewed humans in the land to which God brought you. That's what Torah was supposed to accomplish among the people that God had liberated. So if there are, and there are, Gentiles in the Roman churches that are being true humans, that's the display of the work of Torah. And these are going to be people who pass judgment on you, um, who are now passing judgment on them. They will be people who on the final day stand up as paradigms of what God wanted, and you will be found wanting. Uh, in verses 20 and 29, Paul is not, some people, some interpreters uh, think that Paul is kind of re-describing what it means to be Jewish here. 
that is a person is a true Jew who's a Jew on the inside. I don't think that's what Paul is doing. Um, I think he's saying it doesn't, I mean, somebody who is Jewish on the outside, that's not, that's not necessarily a person who enjoys the praise of God. Um, so to, to merely have this done to your bodies and to have this outward display of being Jewish, it doesn't get you anywhere. What God was after from the beginning uh, of his work with Israel was people who had circumcised hearts, people who had hearts for God, which would have been embodied through um, becoming a community of God's justice. That's the point all along. So what value is it for you to sort of have something done to your body, for you to observe Sabbath, for you to eat foods in a certain way or to eat a certain diet? What's the value? Because that's never what God was after in the first place. So Romans chapter two, Paul going after the weak. Uh, I do not believe this is sort of like an attack on a person in general who is self-righteous and certainly not an attack on some kind of imagined Jew. This is, Paul is targeting the actual people there in the Roman house churches who constitute the group, the weak Gentiles who think that because they have some kind of conformity to a Jewish identity, they're in a place of moral superiority to pass judgment on others. And that is um, the very problem that Paul's wanting to solve. And in chapter two, he just drops the bomb. Well, uh, for next time, Romans 3, probably 3, 1 to 9, uh, unless I can get through the rest of um, 1 to 20. We'll see. We will see. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy what remains of summer. I know that I am. And uh, it's late in the day here, but it's still a beautiful day. I'm not going to let it get away. You do the same.